I'm Angela Ross, and this is SoCal Voices. Dr. Bibi Pirayesh is an educational therapist based in Los Angeles. For 15 years, her work is focused on helping children, families, and schools better understand the unique needs of kids with learning disabilities. More recently, her work has shifted toward the fight for the learning rights of kids in LA, where children's educational experiences are directly linked to their socioeconomic status. Bibi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Before we get into the specifics of your work, I'd like for you to talk about uh, what attracted you to education and specifically the extent to which your personal education, your own education, which occurred in three countries, if I'm correct, impacted your perception about education. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually, I come from a family of educators, so you know, I, I think that the value of education and questions around education have just always been there as long as I remember. I am also a first generation immigrant. I'm Iranian American. And so as an immigrant, I was always very much aware that education is going to be sort of the the way forward um, in this brand new world. And, you know, I, I, I do just come from a, a culture and a background that also highly values education. But I came to educational therapy, I think, from a very different route than um, maybe other people do. I was interested in um, understanding how learning works and how that understanding and research can help inform teaching because uh, from a very young age, you know, even though I I've, I went to school in Iran, I went to school in the U.S., um, and then my family immigrated to Canada for a while, so I did high school in Canada, I it was just very clear to me, even as a young child, that the way that we do things does not quite match the way that human beings or children develop and, and evolve. Um, and school just, you know, sort of felt like uncomfort- an uncomfortable place, even for those of us, like, you know, for me, who, who happen to be very good at the linear type of thinking and learning that we do in schools. Um, so I was interested kind of in, in education and learning from a research perspective um, and continuously confused about why so much of the research that we were doing sort of in the ivory towers or in the universities was never making it to the classrooms. And I almost fell into or happened upon educational therapy in one of those moments where I wasn't really sure what I wanted my next step to be. I just finished my um, graduate degree in developmental psychology and cognitive science, and I, I couldn't quite place my next step. So I took a job um, just to sort of make rent, uh, working with kids with different types of learning disabilities at a, at a center where they did educational therapy, which I'd never even heard of. And it was sort of this moment of, ah, like this is where we can see the connection between the research and practice. Um, and then, of course, you know, there was the other side of it where I just suddenly realized I really do enjoy working with children. Um, so it all kind of converged together. And that's how I came into the field. When you were at this center and you saw the dots connect with what you had been studying and how that actually manifested when it was applied, can you think of or remember a specific instance in which that that spark really flew when, when you saw that happen? Sure. I mean, I, I think one of, one of the most sort of exciting um, 
things that happened for me there was being able to see kids who had dyslexia, di- you know, different types of diagnoses under dyslexia, basically learn how to break the reading code mm-hmm. um, and be able to learn how to read. I mean, there's just sort of, there's nothing like it when a child can um, suddenly begins to be able to do that. And we, we, we came to that from the science of reading approach of help, you know, helping children who have difficulty processing sounds, et cetera, really learn how to do that. Um, and to, to kind of observe, because it's, it's, it's one of those, it's a very rare thing to be able to, you know, do work and see the results of it. If not immediately, then almost immediately. So over the course of a few months to be able to see a child who can't even sound out um, their, their letters, be able to actually read. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that was sort of the what really brought me in. Wow. There's nothing like the look on a child's face when they get it. Right. And that that's that is a that's a deep reward when you've been working with a kid. That's that's amazing. Let's let's get to the basics. Uh what is a learning disability? And I ask you that because I think a lot of us have in our heads this, this sort of preconceived notion about what that is. Sure. So um, you know, I'll, I'll sort of say how we go about defining and diagnosing, and then maybe I'll put in a little uh, note about my own critique or my own issues around the way that we do that. Um, So there's two ways to get a learning disability diagnosis. It either happens um, through testing that has been done, um, you know, by, let's say, a, a psychologist or a neuropsychologist, a specialist who uses the DSM, um, in order to to give the diagnosis and different types of DSM diagnoses are things like ADHD, for example, or autism. And then there's a, a second way that it could happen, which is through the school system, where what we would call a school psychologist uses um, not the DSM, but um, essentially IDEA or, or or the rules and laws that we have. I mean, they still do educational testing, um, but the criteria is determined by educational law, and then they use that to give a diagnosis. And a a learning disability is essentially a significant difference between a student's ability um, and their their performance. So um, oftentimes, we either use, or maybe in conjunction together, we use um, basically results of testing, as well as if a school is doing it, how the student is doing in the school system. So if they're failing all of their classes, but then when we do um, the testing, they're showing that based on their other scores, for example, different types of intelligence scores, they shouldn't be failing their classes. Then we're going to look to see if there's the potential that there might be some kind of disability, some, um, you know, for example, a processing issue or other issue that is preventing them from being able to essentially what we call access the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the way that we that we define it. But I, I mean, learning disabilities are real. These diagnoses are, are real. Um, but at the same time, I think that we have to be careful about not placing too much emphasis on them, because it's very much possible, for example, that a child does struggle with different types of processing skills, but they don't quite 
uh, they're not quite impacted severely enough to be able to meet the diagnostic criteria. But that doesn't mean that they don't need support or they don't need differentiation. Um, and, you know, quite a, a, a large portion of kids who come to me mm-hmm. um, are kids who maybe don't quite meet the criteria, but who still struggle. So what's happening uh, in your observation with kids in Los Angeles who may display some of the signs um, that they have a learning disability that may not be happening in uh, other areas of the country or uh, even within the city of LA? What sort of disparities or or differences are are you seeing um, in terms of how learning disabilities are handled and treated and, and, and who gets what in terms of what's on the menu to address uh, some of these concerns? Sure. I mean, you know, much of what happens here is similar to things that happen in the rest of the country in terms of missed diagnoses or an, an actual misdiagnosis, so you know, diagnosing things um, incorrectly, uh, a, a lot of pushback from the school system, obviously because special education services, testing, et cetera, tend to be quite costly. So, you know, a, a lot of parents not knowing how to navigate the system and as a result, having their children basically miss out on things that they are entitled to get. So, and, and those things I think are reflected throughout the country. They're not necessarily unique to, to our system here or to LAUSD, which is obviously um, quite large. Um, But I think for me, uh, what is very unique to Los Angeles is the incredible differences between what kids who are in the public school system get or don't get and what kids whose parents have the resources to get them private services um, get. And I think that, you know, these questions around social justice for me really be, you know, grew out of my own experience of being, you know, a first-generation immigrant, you know, who, who came up in the public school system, and then working in a field where, after a few years, you know, I was very happy about being able to see this connection between research and practice. But then, after a few years, I started to observe that the type of client who's walking through the door is always the same: primarily wealthy, primarily white parents who can afford these types of resources for their children. Um, And that slowly became, you know, started to become a really big problem for me because I felt like I was contributing to the divide under the guise of, you know, doing this great work and helping children, but what, who was I really helping? And, you know, I I was seeing that children whose parents have the means will eventually get the support that they need and be okay. But none of these things are, are ultimately making it to, to the public schools um, and, and helping kids who probably need it even more uh, because their parents aren't going to be able to help them financially when they grow up. So then how do we fix that? How do we get it to the kids in the public schools who have a greater need? I mean, let's just lay, lay, lay it out there. They do have a greater need generally. So how do we fix it? Well, that was essentially the question that really um, fueled me to go back to school. And, you know, I, I went back to do my my doctorate essentially in social justice and education. I went in a very different direction than kind of the, the science background that, that I'd come from. And I had these, um, I guess you could call them naive notions <laughs> about, uh, you know, some of, some of these concepts. And I, I was so 
um, you know, fueled by this idea of I'm going to figure out how to bring the principles of educational therapy to the kids who need it most and into the public school system and all that. And, you know, unfortunately, once I really began to more deeply understand why these things don't quite make it, you know, I, I grew, I guess you could say in a way more and more disillusioned because I, I began to understand that there really is no reason why we can't have these things. The reason that we don't is that there are powers that ensure that we don't uh, because, you know, because we want a private industry, because we want some of these divides to continue, um, because some of the structures that we have set up in the public school system make it completely impossible to provide, um, you know, the type of one-on-one -on -one continuous intensive work that it would take um, to remediate some of these learning differences. Um, but primarily, I think, what's sort of at the, at the heart of why we have the special education issues that we have, even when the funding is there, um, I think essentially comes back to ableism. And, you know, ableism is actually something that I would see even in the private school systems, um, you know, even with the families who, who have the resources. Ideologically, that was sort of, you know, the way that we look at difference. So to come, come back to that original question about diagnosis, this approach of us saying there is a way to be, and if you don't fit that, we're not going to necessarily differentiate for you. We're going to pathologize you. Mm. Um, and so it just, it's sort of, I, I, I went in thinking I had answers um, and I came out realizing, no, I, I you know, I have a, a million more questions and that um, the reason that things are the way they are, are far more complex uh, than we, than we like to, or that we realize sometimes um, and that unfortunately there is no easy way of bringing all of this to, to the kids who need it most. We'll be back right after this. The I Found Her podcast chronicles the personal journey of a birth mother, the daughter she placed for adoption, and their reunification some 30 years later. Listen in as this mother-daughter duo with a twist unpack the details of their amazing reunion and how finding one another has impacted their lives and the lives of their families. You'll laugh, shed a few tears, and be incredibly inspired. I Found Her. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Help us understand uh, a little bit more about educational therapy uh, and what someone in your role does at a micro level and how that differs from tutoring. Sure. An educational therapist is someone who understands, or is someone who should anyway, understand how learning happens and all the different ways in which it can break down and what we need to do, what type of targeted intervention is required in order to address uh, you know, the, the places where maybe learning is breaking down or to look, to know how to differentiate and change, um, the approach based on the way that a particular student reads or needs, or, you know, whatever it is that they're expected to do. So in a way, I think it's sort of, um, there's an aspect of it that is, for example, similar to, you know, for example, people have often heard of speech language, um, therapists or pathologists. Um, so in a way, when it comes to 
the learning skills that we have or, or the underlying processing skills that we have, educational therapy is similar in that you go to an educational therapist so that they can help um, remediate some of those underlying issues. But there's a whole other aspect to, to educational therapy, which is a great deal of advocacy for, um, for children in schools. Because, you know, our, our school system does tend to be very, you know, linear and one size fits all. Um, so a, a lot of the work is also around, you know, helping teachers understand how they can differentiate, how they can, you know, change their expectations or, or come up with different ways to evaluate a student's understanding, etc. So all of that kind of falls under um, educational therapy. It is, is a very different field than, you know, say psychology or, you know, even speech language pathology, because it, even though it has very old roots, um, it, it is not something that is A, covered by insurance, or B, requires any kind of, you know, state licensing process. I mean, there is a licensing process through the, organ, you know, the umbrella organization, but it's not state related. And so a lot of people don't even know it exists. Um, you know, people in West Los Angeles all know <laughs> it exists and you could, you know, throw a stone and hit an therapist in West LA, but <laughs> in some of the other parts um, of the country or even the city, people have yeah. never even heard of it. And, and I think, you know, the, the major problem with that is that the, the lack of recognition basically means that people, people don't know that this is something that students might need support in, you know, it, un, unless you kind of, again, are so severely impacted that you're like, let's say in a, in a special education classroom where you're working with a resource teacher or something, um, whose jobs in my experience, although you would think they're very similar to educational therapy, are actually often more um, around accommodating and modifying as opposed to actual remediation. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of people don't even know that, you know, something like this exists for their children. Um, and so what ends up happening is that oftentimes what takes the place of that is tutoring. But the difference between a therapy and tutoring is that a tutor, much like a teacher, is there to teach content. So they know content and they teach the content. They don't understand necessarily, well, what I mean, there's a reason that the student is missing this content is because they weren't able to learn it in this way to begin with. So it's a little bit like kind of repeating the same thing over and over again without addressing the underlying issue. And that's one of the reasons why for a lot of people, tutoring doesn't actually end up working. Because, for example, if a student has a, a memory or an attention or a you know, sound processing issue, it doesn't matter how many times you repeat the content, they're not going to get it. You have to first address the underlying issue. So in terms of advocacy and addressing this from the social justice perspective, what are you seeing in terms of support, either from the policy folks, uh, the, the administrative folks, who's helping make this better? And who do we need to nudge a little bit to get them uh, to pay attention? I mean, I, I, I can't, really pinpoint and say, I think the people that are helping to make it better are the people. And those people could be people like me. They could be teachers. They could be parents. Occasionally it's an administrator, but it's whoever is willing to go up to bat and fight for the student. Um, and in different settings, it's different people. 
I wish that we lived in a world in which, you know, with all of the research that we have, for example, on neuroplasticity, um, I wish we lived in a world in which we could convince people that if a student is struggling to learn, they don't necessarily that doesn't have to become their identity and that we can change that and we can shift that. But instead, we live in a world in which, for example, we know exactly how to remediate, you know, reading disabilities. And yet, you know, <laughs> that we continue to have statistics in the nation that show that, that you know, we don't do that. Um, and even kids who who don't have a, a reading disability because we don't use the science of, of reading in our teaching end up you know, not learning how to read. So um, our problems are very big <laughs> and very multi-layered. But um, at the same time, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing now that I never used to see, uh, which gives me a great deal of hope, is that um, some of the students themselves are starting to become more vocal about this is not working, this does not fit. And kind of putting their foot down and, and and demanding a different, you know, approach. And there is sort of a, a little bit of what, you know, you might call a, a neurodiversity movement, which is um, incredible to see, you know, to, to what extent we're going to fight that, to what extent we're going to embrace that, I think will determine um, where things will go. But that's also a, a big part of, you know, when I when I speak with teachers or even parents around advocacy, that's what I'm always asking them to remember is to remember that when you're in, you know, a, a meeting for a student or when you're making educational decisions, whether they're big decisions or even small decisions, like what I expect you to do for homework today, always ask yourself, are you doing this for the students or are you doing this in order to force the student to fit into the system? And then as a result, basically support and uphold the system? Or are you really willing to shake the system in order to make it be more reflective of the needs of the students? So um, it's just, I think, in these small questions, these small reflections, these small acts of advocacy, that we, we begin to kind of question our own ways of thinking about, well, this is just the way that it is, and this is just the way that it's always been. So yeah, no easy answers. <laughs> no, it, it's a complex issue, but uh, you really hit on something, and it, it seems to be true for so many things. Uh, the folks who are most impacted generally are the first people to start saying, hey, and as much as we feel like we're supposed to be there for the students and do things for them to help them get to where they need to be, when they start saying, hey, excuse me, uh, I'm not really getting what I need, that that adds a, a new dimension. And I think it helps uh, foster uh, greater change, but they really shouldn't have to do the heavy lifting. I mean, there are others who really should be should be doing that. So for folks who are interested in um, helping to further greater equity and, and the way we address learning disabilities, how can they be of help to folks like you? Who should they visit? Uh, who should they support? What should they be doing to, to make things better? Well, you know, I I think I think one of the things that makes this whole pr process somewhat frustrating is that, you know, I, I used to think like, 
we had to understand how learning happens in the brain and like science is going to teach us and and, and show us the way forward. Or we need to, I mean, of course, I, I do believe that we need to be politically active and that, you know, we, you know, ev every educator, every parent, every student needs to be politically conscious and politically active. But I think at the end of the day, what is most frustrating is that the answers are always right in front of us if we're willing to listen. So the point that you were saying, for example, about um, you know centering the voices of, of the students, children will tell us what they need. And oftentimes what they need is not that difficult for us to give them. What happens is we have these systems and these ways that we have already decided are the way to be that trump what the child is telling us. So I would say probably the most important thing any of us can do is to just listen and try to be in tune with what the child is telling us they need and, and to let that lead us instead of our curriculum, instead of the diagnosis, instead of the policy, instead of, you know, standardized tests or standard, whatever it is, listen to what the child needs and, and trust that children want to learn. They want to grow. The human brain is wired to grow. It, it, it's, if, if a child doesn't want to grow, something is wrong. Something is going on. That is science. So yeah, so I, I would say more than anything, I think if we're, if we try to increase our capacity and our willingness to just listen, they'll tell us. Great advice. Where do folks go to learn more about you? Uh, sure. So my website prob uh, probably has the most information about me, including all of my you know, social media places where people can find me. It's www.oneofonekids.org. So yeah, and I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. So that's an easy place to find me too. <laughs> Very good. Thanks again for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm Angela Ross. Thanks for listening. Remember to follow SoCal Voices on social media at SoCal Voices and hop on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. We love to hear from our listeners, so drop us a line at contactus at SoCalVoices.com. 